Well, good morning, everyone. My name is Allison Pinches, and I'm one of the pastoral staff here at Courtright. And it is good to be together and good to see so many of your faces. And we're glad for all of those of you who are joining with us at home. Um, So one of my favorite things to do on vacation is to curl up with a good book. And I'm especially fond of mysteries. I liked Nancy Drew and Agatha Christie as a kid, but recently my favorite is Louise Penny. For those of you who don't know, she's a brilliant Canadian author. And I love the suspense of a mystery. I love trying to figure out the who done it. And I but most of all, I love the end where everything is revealed. Can you imagine reading a mystery and at the end it says, and the detective just couldn't solve this one? It wouldn't sell very well, would it? We love the suspense, but ultimately we want the mystery to be revealed. Well, today we're going to talk a bit more about mysteries and the revelation of mysteries. But our mystery today comes in the form of a dream. So this week we're continuing our series in the book of Daniel. Daniel was written after the Israelites had been taken into exile. The Israelites had been living in their own land with their own king in charge of their own country. But when King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and attacked the city of Jerusalem, and then it says that the Lord let the Israelites' king fall into Nebuchadnezzar's power. The Babylonians brought some of the young royal Israelite men who were wise and well-educated back to Babylon and taught them Babylonian literature and language so that they could serve in the king's palace. So the book of Daniel tells the story of four of these Jewish men, Daniel and three of his friends, who try to live faithfully in this challenging context with an autocratic ruler, different food and traditions, where many gods were worshipped, and where there was incredible wealth, technology, and power. Pastor Alex told us the first week that Babylon was the superpower of its day. And then two weeks ago, Justin took us through the first part of chapter two, but then he left us with this huge cliffhanger. We've had to wait two weeks to find out. (laughs) Or, of course, you could have gone and read it, which I hope you did. So today, so to recap, chapter two starts out with King Nebuchadnezzar having dreams that were so disturbing to him that he couldn't sleep. So he summoned together all of his wisest leaders, the magicians, astrologers, sorcerers, all the ones that were supposed to have a channel to the divine and be able to interpret dreams. And then the wise men say to the king, okay, tell us your dream and then we'll tell you what it means. But this king is smart. Perhaps he's been tricked before. And so the king says, no, you have to tell me what my dream was. That way I will know I can trust your interpretation. And then he gets a little dramatic. He says, if you don't tell me my dream and the interpretation, I'll cut you into pieces and tear your houses down. But if you can tell me, you'll be heaped with gifts and rewards and honor. So the wise men again ask him to tell them the dream, and the king refuses. And then the wise men say something that's going to come back in our story today. They say, what the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So then King Nebuchadnezzar flies into this violent rage and ordered that all the wise men be executed. Now when Daniel hears about this, he asks the king for a little bit more time, and then he tells his friends to seek mercy from the God of heaven about this mystery. 
That night, the mystery of the dream was revealed to Daniel in a vision. And Daniel woke up praising God and saying, wisdom and power belong to God, and God is the one who reveals mysteries. So now we're finally going to get to find out what happened, and we'll look at the rest of our story for today in three parts. But before we look at that first part, let's pray. God, I thank you that you are the one that reveals mysteries. And so I pray that you would come now and through these words and through your text and your word and your scripture, would you reveal us something about who you are? Would you help us to understand that in a new or fresh way? Would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear who you are and the truth that you are revealing to us this morning? For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen. I encourage you, there's a lot in our text today, so if you have a Bible or on your phone, I encourage you to have it out so you can follow along. So we're going to begin at Daniel 2, verse 24. Then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon. And he said to him, do not execute the wise men of Babylon. Take me to the king, and I will interpret his dream for him. Arioch took Daniel to the king at once and said, I have found a man among the exiles from Judah who can tell the king what his dream means. The king asked Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret it? Daniel replied, no wise man, enchanter, magician, or diviner can explain to the king the mystery he has asked about. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Your dream and the visions that pass through your mind as you were lying in bed are these. As your majesty was lying there, your mind turned to things to come, and the revealer of mysteries showed you what is going to happen. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because I have greater wisdom than anyone else, but so that your majesty may know the interpretation and that you may understand what went through your mind. When Daniel learned the king's dream, he went to Arioch. And notice how quickly Arioch takes credit I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who can tell the king the interpretation. This is in contrast to Daniel's approach of humility. Notice that Daniel starts off saying the exact same thing that his wise colleagues had said. No wise men, enchanters, magicians, or diviners can show to the king the mystery that the king is asking. But the wise men also said, no one can reveal it to the king except the gods, and they do not live among humans. So after Daniel says the first part, no man can reveal the dream itself, Daniel says, but, but there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has disclosed to King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen at the end of days. The picture that the wise men give is of gods who are removed, who are separate, who are withholding of knowledge, who are distant from people, Essentially, that the knowledge of the gods is inaccessible to them, even though that was technically what they got paid to do. Instead, Daniel says, there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he's actually revealed to you, Nebuchadnezzar, the mystery of what will happen. Daniel said, your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed were these. And now, with the king likely on the edge of his throne with rapt attention, Instead of telling him the dream, Daniel again makes sure he is being abundantly clear that God is the revealer of mysteries. He has revealed this mystery to you in a dream, and he's revealed it to me not because I have any more wisdom than anyone else, 
but it's been revealed so that you will know the thoughts of your mind. The dream is important, but it's not as important as you knowing that God is the one who's revealing mysteries here. So with that explicitly clear, Daniel goes on to describe the dream. So we'll look at our second part, Daniel 2, starting at verse 31. Your majesty looked, and there before you stood a large statue, an enormous, dazzling statue, awesome in appearance. The head of the statue was made of pure gold, its chest and arms of silver, its belly and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of baked clay. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were all broken to pieces and became like um, chaff on the threshing floor in the summer. The wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck that statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. This was the dream, and now we will interpret to the king. Your majesty, you are the king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. In your hands he has placed all mankind and the beasts of the field and the birds in the sky. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are that head of gold. After you, another kingdom will arise inferior to yours. Next, a third kingdom, one of bronze, will rule over the whole earth. Finally, there will be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, for iron breaks and smashes everything. And as iron breaks things to pieces, so it will crush and break all the others. Just as you saw that the feet and toes were partly of baked clay and partly of iron, so this will be a divided kingdom. Yet it will have some of the strength of iron in it, even as you saw iron mixed with clay. As the toes were partly iron and partly clay, so this kingdom will be partly strong and partly brittle. And just as you saw the iron mixed with baked clay, so the people will be a mixture and will not remain united any more than iron mixes with clay." In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock cut out of a mountain, but not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold to pieces. The great God has shown the king what will take place in the future. The dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. So I find I get a little lost with all the arms and legs and gold and iron and clay, and being a really visual person, I tried to draw it out for myself to make sense of what's being described here. But I will spare you my awkward drawing and show you someone else's instead. So this is just someone's interpretation of the statue. A head of gold, chest and arms of silver, abdomen and thighs of bronze, legs of iron, and feet a mixture of iron and clay. These different materials, as Daniel explains, represent four different kingdoms, four different eras of who is in charge and who has power and rule and authority. Now, it's interesting to notice a couple of things. The value of the minerals is actually decreasing from top to bottom. Gold is obviously more valuable than iron. However, with the exception of the clay, the materials actually get stronger as you go down, with iron being more durable than gold or silver. But in some ways, 
it really doesn't seem to matter what the materials are. When the rock comes, it smashes the statue and the whole thing obliterates into dust that is blown away. So let's talk about this rock for a moment. We're told two things. The rock was cut out, but not by human hands. And then after striking the statue, this rock becomes a whole mountain. There are some layers of symbolism here. The rock is a metaphor that would have meant something to Daniel and his Jewish friends. The favorite metaphor for God in the Psalms is a rock. You are the rock, or my rock. And it was associated with God's rule. The Babylonians had this idea of the whole earth as like a giant mountain. So when it says that the stone became a great mountain filling the whole earth, they already had an idea of the earth as a great mountain. But to hear that this particular stone, representing the kingdom of the God of heaven, filled the whole earth would have been remarkable. Now, what does it all mean? Well, we are told some, but not all. For centuries, people have spilled a lot of ink debating every little detail. What are the toes? Why are there ten? What does the mixing of iron and clay mean? In biblical interpretation, there is a rule that you follow the text, like a good dance partner. You follow the lead of the dancer. You dance where the leader goes, and you don't linger where the leader doesn't take you. So for our purposes, the way that we're going to do this is by looking at what is explained and then holding lightly to what isn't. A careful reader may have noticed that only two parts of the image, the head and the rock, are identified. Daniel says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head, the head made of fine, pure gold. But again, he makes sure Nebuchadnezzar, the man with complete authority and control in his kingdom, really knows who is in charge. He says, you are king of kings with dominion over people, and creatures, but it was the God of heaven who gave you that authority. The language here calls back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis 1 and 2, when God gives people authority over creatures and land. The interpretation says, as great as you are, a kingdom that is inferior will overtake you, and then another inferior to that will rule, and then a fourth. Kingdoms, rulers, borders, authority will rise and fall. And ultimately, a stone striking the weakest spot will cause the whole thing to crumble. And this leads us to the second thing that's identified. The God of heaven set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed or overtaken. That stone becomes, that becomes a mountain is God's kingdom. The stone that doesn't look impressive initially compared to gold or silver or bronze or even iron becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. Later in the Bible, Jesus tells a story of what the kingdom of heaven is like. He says it's like a tiny little mustard seed that looks like nothing but grows into a huge tree that's big enough to give shade to the birds. Or he says it's like a little pearl, but like the most valuable pearl in the whole world that's worth selling everything else to buy. And the kingdom is like a stone that smashes a statue made of the most beautiful and hardest materials, pulverizing them to be carried off by the wind. And then this stone becomes a mountain that fills the whole earth. As we said, people have spent a lot of time trying to figure out what all the various kingdoms were. Did they happen right away, or a long time later, or have they even happened yet? 
Well, as the Bible Project points out, none of these theories lines up perfectly with the vision given here. And what that means is that the truths are not limited to a particular generation, but for all generations, including ours. The Bible Project explains that that is why Jesus can use imagery from Daniel to talk about the oppressive leaders in Jerusalem in his day, and John in Revelation could talk about the oppressive Roman regime and all future oppressive regimes. This will be explored further throughout the rest of the book of Daniel, but this book presents a pattern and a promise. The pattern is that kingdoms, oppressive regimes, empires will rise up, take over, and then they will fall. And the promise is that one kingdom will be established that lasts forever, and that is the rule and order of the kingdom of God. As Wendy Witter says, regardless of the interpretations of the kingdoms, the main message is the same. Human kingdoms, no matter how impressive, will ultimately be destroyed and overtaken by the everlasting kingdom of God. Which takes us to our last part, Daniel 2, looking at verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel and paid him honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to him. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you were able to reveal this mystery. Then the king placed Daniel in a high position and lavished many gifts on him. He placed him, um, made him ruler over the entire province of Babylon and placed him in charge of all its wise men. Moreover, at Daniel's request, the king appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego administrators over the province of Babylon, while Daniel himself remained at the royal court. The king's response to Daniel is shocking. This great and mighty king with all power and authority falls on his face and worshipped and honored Daniel. This Daniel, this foreign captive who had just been slated for execution. We might be a little concerned that his worship is misdirected, and you only actually have to go, spoiler alert, six words into the next chapter to find out that the king hasn't really understood all that Daniel's been saying about his God. However, here, Nebuchadnezzar does proclaim, truly your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries. He gets that this knowledge has come from beyond Daniel. The king doesn't seem phased by the fact that the interpretation is not really good news for him. Maybe it's the relief of finally having his dream explained, or maybe knowing is better than living with the sleepless angst of the unknown, or maybe he's still ruminating about that part where Daniel told him he's the golden head. Regardless, he sees the true source of knowledge, the revealer of the mystery, as Daniel's God. And wanting to honor this one with a connection to this God and keep him close by, he gave Daniel many gifts and put him in charge of all the other wise men and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon. From captive to death row to second in command. And Daniel doesn't forget his friends who helped him get there. He uses his new power to secure positions of influence for them as well. So we're going to revisit the two main ideas from this passage, that God is the one who reveals mysteries, and that kingdoms will come and go, but God's kingdom is forever.
So first of all, God is the revealer of mysteries. And three things in particular we're going to pay attention to here. God wants to be known. He is a God who wants us to know him. The second, it is God who makes sense of the world. And the third, revelation is not on our timeline. So the first, God who wants to be known. What this story points to is a God who wants to be known. In contrast with the ideas of the Babylonians' gods who were distant and removed, the God of the Bible is the revealer of mysteries. In Mark's gospel, Jesus says, For everything that is hidden will eventually be brought out into the open, and every secret brought to light. It is God who makes sense of the world. God is in the business of bringing order out of chaos. We see this in his creation story, and throughout the Bible, we see him bringing health to sickness, understanding out of confusion, peace out of violence, life out of death, and revelation out of mystery. We have been living in confusing times, uncertain times. It's hard to make sense of things. But Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. There is someone writing this story. There is someone who is ultimately in control. And when we know our place in God's story, it helps us to make sense of ourselves and the world. As we can see from our story today, Revelation is God's to reveal, and that means it's on his timeline and not ours. I'm sure the king would have loved to understand his dreams immediately and avoid those sleepless nights. And even as we look today, though the vision is interpreted, not every detail is given. God's timing and what he reveals and what he doesn't is certainly a mystery. There are many things I would like to know, and living with uncertainty is really hard. But the, revealers of, the revealer of mystery's primary purpose is not to reveal exactly what's going to happen or give you the information you want, It's to cultivate faithfulness, to draw you to himself, to shape your character into his likeness. And so sometimes we throw our hands up at the mysteries not yet revealed. We hang on to what has been revealed and again return to trusting the revealer of mysteries. So how does God reveal? Well, there's lots more that could be said about this, but we'll just briefly name a couple things, a couple ways that God reveals himself. So first, the Holy Spirit is the one that helps us to know God and mediates this revelation. The Holy Spirit helps us understand God through scripture, through community, in hearing God's voice, and sometimes, as we have seen, God even reveals himself in dreams. My friend recently told me about a really vivid dream that she had. She's in a time of discernment and is trying to figure out where God is leading and wondered if that was at all connected with this dream. At a meeting with her spiritual director, the director was able to help her make space to ask God and hear from him about the dream. And God revealed more. He gave her a new image and actually reframed some of her experience of the dream and gave her a sure sense of his leading and purpose. Now, he didn't explain it all. He didn't say, this is exactly what everything means and what you're to do. But he did offer insight and assurance and peace. A couple of things to note here. First of all, we need to be careful with interpreting dreams. 
I have found it helpful, like my friend did, to do this with the care of a spiritual director. A good director will not try to interpret the dream for you, but will help you to ask and hear from God about it. We need community, just like Daniel had with his companions. Secondly, there likely will not be an explanation for every single thing. Okay, well, A means X, and B is Y, and C is Z. In my experience, it's not often like that, and we can spend a lot of time agonizing over the details. It's more likely that God is speaking about the state of our heart than the specific details of our life. When I was in university and agonizing over what I should do, I went to a seminar at an Urbana conference called Finding the Will of God, and they said something I've never forgotten. God cares more about who you become than what you do. And whenever I have sought details about direction, it's, it's less often, though it certainly can happen, that he gives me the specific details about what to do, and more often that he speaks to what's happening in my heart. When I had left a job that I loved and was really struggling to discern what was next, I was considering different things, but one of them just didn't seem like it would have this significant impact for God's kingdom. And I was actually sitting right over there in church one day, and I heard, it's not up to you to decide what is worthy enough for you to be called to. Now, as much as I would have liked, he didn't tell me what that calling was, but he offered something that was way more than the details about any one job. Rather, he spoke to a posture of my heart and something that would be important throughout my life. God is the revealer of mysteries. He wants to be known. He helps us make sense of the world, but his timing for revelation is not the same as ours. Second thing, kingdoms come and go, but the kingdom of God is forever. Part of what this implies is that the impossible is possible. The seemingly impossible is possible for better and for worse. In this past year, we have seen a lot of what seemed impossible be possible for worse. All kinds of things that many of us couldn't imagine in our lifetime. Things we had counted on were suddenly not true. Whether that was finding toilet paper in the store, or wondering if it would be legal for us to invite people to our wedding, or seeing rows of empty shelves, or sending our kids to school in masks, or being able to send our kids to school at all, to trusting that if we needed to go to the hospital, that there would be people there to take care of us. So many things that seem like certainties have been upended. Even non-COVID things, like the hope that we have put in democracy, and the idea that as a society we're getting better and kinder. Shocking things, unexpected things, unnerving things, rattling things. The seemingly impossible has been shown to be way more possible than we feared. We, of course, know how the story of the Titanic ends, but in its day it was called the unsinkable ship, and it sunk. The idea that Babylon would fall and be overturned would have been that shocking. Who could have imagined a ruler like Nebuchadnezzar, who had complete authority, being taken down? The institutions where we have put our trust are more precarious than we had thought. That's the scary news. But the good news is that the impossible is possible 
also for the better. That stone became a mountain, the tiny mustard seed a huge bush, and the kingdom of God, the order and rule and the way of doing things that God intended can and is being established. In contrast to the oppressive empires that are demolished, this kingdom is one of justice, where there is good news for the poor, freedom for the captives, Recovery of sight for the blind and the oppressed are free. It's hard to believe, but the impossible is possible. And what that means is that reality actually will be established. But how does that happen? Well, the God who reveals mysteries wants to be known and wants each of us to know him. He wants us to know him so much that he sent his son Jesus his representative, and even his very self to earth so that we could know him. Jesus came not only so we could know God and be known by him, but also to rescue the world from these oppressive regimes and establish his kingdom, his order, his way of doing things. And he says, come, be part of that kingdom with me. Be part of doing things that are about life and order and flourishing in contrast to the oppressive empires that are about greed and power. It's hard to believe, but the impossible is possible means that God's kingdom reality is actually and will be established. And we are invited to know God and to be part of this kingdom. But we have to see the ways that we have been living that go against his order and go against his way of doing things and how we are actually part of the problem. The ways that we have put our needs above others, tried to make a name for ourselves, have lived apart from God, have not known him or cared to know him, how we have used people for our own gains and exploited the earth that was entrusted to us. The natural consequences or the end result of these choices, both for kingdoms, the earth, relationships, others, and ourselves, is ultimately destruction and death. And so death had to be part of the solution. But instead of the whole world dying, God sent his son Jesus, who didn't have any brokenness in him, to die as a consequence for this way of living. And the incredible part is because of his death, there doesn't have to be any more death. The death of a perfect God-man on behalf of the imperfect world managed to break the power of death forever. It ushered in a new kingdom that was about life and flourishing and a kingdom that would last forever. A rock that shattered the systems of oppression and death and established systems of life. So as my eight-year-old asked me one day, why didn't it work? We know that the stone will become the mountain. God's kingdom will fill the earth, but death is very much still here and so are oppressive systems. We are living in a time where we know the end of the story, but we're not there yet. Jesus has said that he will come back, and when he does, he will make everything right. And if we put our trust in him, when we die, we get to live and experience that reality with him. But this isn't just about what happens when we die. The good news is that we get to start experiencing this now. And that's because this life, this rescue plan, this secret to destroying oppressive empires and death and making all things right, this new kingdom comes down to a relationship. God wants to reveal himself to us, for us to know him and trust him. 
And that relationship can begin anytime. It's what he's always wanted from the beginning of time. And amazingly, he actually invites us to join him in the work of rescuing the world and of seeing this new kingdom established. He invites us to work and act and pray in ways that are in line with his kingdom. And as we live and love and serve that way, we are seeing that kingdom be established, even as we still wait for it to be fully present. And so we can pray for the impossible to be possible for better, praying bold prayers. Maybe it's praying for an end to overdoses in our city, or for that person you never imagined could possibly come to know the goodness of God, or for a relationship that seems like it's gone too far to be restored. The impossible is possible, and God's kingdom will be established. Would you join with me in prayer? God, we thank you that you are the one who reveals mysteries. And so I pray that whether we know you, feel like we know you a lot, or don't know you at all, that you would be revealing yourself to us. And God, I pray that wherever we are in that, you would give us courage to turn towards you and to put our trust in you. And God, as we do that, would you continue to reveal more of yourself to us? And would you help us to see the ways that you are establishing your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? Would you give us courage to pray boldly that that might be true? Would you give us eyes to hope and long for the reality that you are establishing? And we pray that you would do this work in and through and among us. For we ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.